take your Bibles out, please. Open them to the book of Hebrews. Turn again to the second chapter of Hebrews. Starting once more at the first verse, if you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace to understand difficult passages, to see them in light of the whole counsel of Scripture, and to be faithful with our interpretation of it. We pray, God, that you would bring light to our understanding, clarity to our thinking, obedience to our lives, and that all that we do would reflect the reality of who we are. Father, we know that that's always true, that what we do shows what we are. So, Father, fix what we do, that it would reflect you. Help us to love you. Help us to honor you. I pray, God, that in this day, anything that I say that is not right would be left on the floor, but that your truth would be planted deep in our hearts. I pray for your unction. I pray for your guidance. I pray for your spirit to be upon me. And I pray, God, for clarity of thought and of speech, that your word would be honored, that your son would be honored, that the life that was shed for us will receive the full reward of the suffering. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When Jesus was taken up into heaven, he told his disciples to wait for the promised spirit. Um, he, he, was told, he told them that the spirit would endue them with power from on high. This power from on high, this spirit, is the promised heavenly gift spoken of here. This promised gift is our guide, our protector, our supply. He is our wisdom. He is the third person of the Godhead sent by Jesus to empower the work of the fledgling church and to seal, fill, and abide with the chosen who make up that church. The spirit is that one who makes us unique among all organizations. And while the world cannot partake of him, it can feel his power and presence when we walk in truth among them. He is often imitated and faked. He is often abused and maligned. He is often denied in word and by many words, but never effectively. For truth will always triumph. The falsification of his person and work does lead to ter terrible apostasy. And it's this which we're going to spend some time thinking about today. So I want to start with the idea that the church was to be led by the Spirit. The power promised was essential 
For the entire worship of God was to be overturned in all of its practice. There was to be no more daily sacrifice. There was to be no more sacrifice for sin in any way. There were to be no more priests to intercede on behalf of the people. There was to be no more of being held at a distance by God. There was to be no more of being subject to the law of works. There was to be no more absence of the indwelling communion that we enjoy with our God. There was to be no more exclusion of the Gentiles. And there was to be no more being merely servants. But instead, we have been made children of the Most High. Now I want you to think about that list of things. And I want you to think about how cataclysmic those changes were to a church which was largely comprised of Jewish believers. Right? At the beginning, the church was made up of Jewish Christians. It wasn't until many years later that the gospel began to be proclaimed to the Gentiles. And at the outset of all of this, you have to recognize and appreciate how hard it was for them to even take in the changes that they were proposing to be made unilaterally. There was never any real acceptance of the teachings of Christ by the Jewish establishment. But many who were in the Jewish establishment became believers, the scripture tells us. And, and then many who were in the establishment themselves had to wrestle out these ideas and had to try and figure out how they obeyed Christ while still honoring their Jewish heritage. And it was a difficult thing for them to sort. This is why Jesus told the apostles, guys, look, I'm not going to be with you anymore. I want you to go chill in the upper room, get some coffee, get some donuts, wait. It'll be a little while, but I'm going to send the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, then you can commence the work. Right? Now that's the Jennings transliteration of, of the Scripture. But understand that really that's what Jesus was telling them. Go and hang out. Go pray. Go spend time together. Go make sure that you are bound together, heart and soul, with one another, and wait for the coming of the Spirit. Why would he tell them this? Why not just get busy? It's time. Let's go. It's the church age. So they can think and prepare a plan. Okay, so they can think. So they can prepare themselves. Pray. Because they were going to need the Spirit, right? They couldn't do it without Him. They couldn't do it without the giving of the Spirit. Because when we try to do things on our own, does it ever go right? <laughs> Never, right? I mean, you, you might be able to accomplish the things that are within your scope of training and ability. But if you set yourself to plan your life and, and plan a, a drastic change in things, if you set yourself to say, this is the course that I'm going to follow, you, you have to be honest enough to recognize that it never works out the way that you plan. It never goes the way that you expect. Never. Right? And the, the institution of the church was too important an event for Christ to leave it up to the disciples, even though he had trained them and spent three years with them and given them everything that they were going to need to know in order to do what was given. They were lacking the indwelling presence of God. They were lacking the Spirit. They were lacking the power that would enable the things that they were called to do. <clears throat> because at every turn, they were treading on unprecedented ground. 
That there was no precursor for them to look back on and go, oh yeah, here's how we work out what it is to follow Christ. They needed some guidance. They needed some help. They needed somebody to, to give them direction. And Jesus was not going to be there with them. Right? They didn't know how to do it. They didn't understand what was really going to happen. And they also needed the strength to stand because the whole taking down the establishment thing put a great big target on them. Every single one of the followers of Christ, every single one of the apostles except John, died the death of a martyr. And they tried to kill John. Right? History tells us that they put him in boiling oil. Ooh. Didn't kill him. When that didn't work, they said, okay, we're not going to deal with you anymore. Go live on Patmos. And they banished him. Right? Every single one of the apostles died a martyr's death. They were crucified. They were run through with spears. They were burned. They were sawn in two. They were beaten to death with clubs. They, they were murdered in horrific ways. And all of it because they were daring to proclaim the name of Jesus as the supreme authority and the only path to God. They were daring to declare the gospel that we are called to declare today. And you say, well, why aren't we being killed? That's a really good question. Maybe it's because we have ceased to declare the gospel and instead declared something which is a little more palatable, a little more friendly, a little more acceptable by lost people, something that doesn't challenge them, but instead causes. Just a thought. In the end, Jesus knew that they were going to be persecuted, hated, and ultimately killed, right? Look at John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting at verse 1, as Jesus is speaking about the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, he says this. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Right? So what's his point here? I'm telling you this because the Spirit is going to be coming among you. And I'm telling you this because I myself am no longer going to be present with you except in my Spirit. Right? And so while I was with you, you didn't really need to worry about it. The hatred of the world was focused on me. But now I'm no longer physically with you. The hatred of the world will now be focused on you. And so if our proclamation of the Gospel is not angering people, there's a really good chance we're not actually proclaiming the gospel. Now, I say that carefully because it's very easy to anger people without proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't necessarily follow that if you're making people mad that you're definitely preaching the gospel. You can make people mad just by being a jerk. Okay? 
But if you're proclaiming the gospel faithfully, you should not expect that everybody is going to be happy about what you're saying to them. In fact, if you're proclaiming the gospel faithfully, you should not expect that many will be happy. You should expect to be largely reviled and hated for the truth that you're speaking. This is completely contrary to the popular culture church idea about what it looks like to be a church. The popular culture wants us to be just like them so that they can be just like us. Where there is no difference, there is no strength. There is no power. And I would contend there is no truth. Jesus warned the disciples that when they walk in truth and obey Him and proclaim His truth, that they will be hated by the world. They will be absolutely despised and that those who kill them will think that they are doing God a service. Now, if that was what was needed at the inception of the church, does it stand true that the church still needs to be led by the Spirit and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it does. We need the Spirit as much today as they did then. The church must be organized and function according to the Word of God and not according to the tradition, the preference, or the norms of culture. Okay? And that includes our traditions, right? Our traditions do not supplant or supersede Scripture. Our traditions may be birthed of Scripture, but traditions are secondary to Scripture. And sometimes tradition itself leads us astray. Okay? To rightly understand Scripture and to rightly obey Scripture, we must recognize the fact that tradition is not authoritative. Okay? Scripture is authoritative, which means that if we're going to walk in truth, we must begin by being Bible-based. If we're going to obey Christ and be a church according to His will and according to His word, we must study Follow, learn, obey, proclaim His Word. Okay? Everything we do has to be organized and focused around the Scripture. The Scripture. The Scripture. We must be gospel proclaiming. That means telling people that they are sinners in need of salvation because they are sinners in the hands of an angry God. That there is salvation in Jesus Christ and in no other. And that apart from his death on their behalf, and apart from their repentance of sin, which is brought about by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, they will find themselves eternally under the wrath of God in hell. There is no easy way to tell somebody that. And when you tell them that, you are likely to offend them. But we must tell them this because we must be a truth-speaking people. Okay? It does no good to speak lies to people and hope that somehow they'll turn out okay. We have to speak the truth. We have to be faithful to speak truth. Which means that part of how we're organized, rather than being traditionally acceptable or culturally acceptable, we must be organized how the scripture tells us to be organized. That means male elder-led. Right? Not women pastors... Not under the authority of the mob, but led by godly men who have been called out. It means that we must be battling sin constantly. We must be pressing obediently after Christ 
to fight the fights that are in the front of the church today. Okay? You, you can name them out. We need to be on the front lines battling against abortion by speaking the truth and by proclaiming the grace of Christ to those who have had abortions and by standing firmly with those that are on the front lines fighting. We need to be fighting against the cultural pressure and the homosexual agenda and the transgender agenda. We need to be very clear that God is not neutral on these questions. We need to be faithfully proclaiming the truth of God's word without compromise and without thought to who might not like it. Okay? Because I promise you, if we are proclaiming it, they are not liking it. It's as simple as that. But if we're going to be faithful, we need to be speaking out against the things that are destroying our culture and destroying our families and destroying our children. And those are just two of the many issues that are in play here. We could go on and on and on about it. But the heart of this whole thing is the fact that if the Spirit is leading us to speak the truth according to Scripture, we need to obey the Spirit of God rather than the culture which hates Him. Okay? We have to do this because if we don't, we dare not call ourselves a church. Our entire faith, practice, and life must be governed by the inerrant, inspired, perfect Word of God. And the culture is still hostile to the truth. Okay? Just as they were in the days of the apostles, they are hostile to the truth today. And, and so it brings us back to the question I asked earlier, why is the church not being persecuted in America? Well, largely because the church in America is not proclaiming the truth. There's nothing to persecute. But where churches begin to stand for truth and begin to say, no, this is what we teach, this is what we believe, this is who we are, we can expect to see the persecution beginning. And in some places it has been. There is much pressure to just conform to the will of the church. I mean, conform to the will of the culture, excuse me. And many churches and many within the church have caved to that pressure. And ironically, it is those within the church who have caved to the pressure of conformity to the culture who become some of the most violently outspoken people against those who proclaim the truth. Okay? It, there's, there's just, it's astounding to me how many people identify themselves as Christians and are just blasting anybody who is just speaking the truth of God's Word. It's just appalling. Well, I'm not honestly accepting their confession. Because the spirit that many people claim to follow but do it without truth has a role in the life of both believers and unbelievers, right? We're, we're looking at this passage in Hebrew and we're talking about apostasy. And apostasy growing in the lives of those who have somehow tasted this heavenly gift who have somehow, in some capacity, experienced something of the Holy Spirit. Now, we want to be really careful not to take what the writer of Hebrews tells us to extremes that are not consistent with the passage. And, and the hardest bit of this whole passage, I'm going to preach next week. So I don't want to steal from it too much because I'm not ready to give it. <laughs> okay? But this idea... Of, of partaking, of, of tasting of the Holy Spirit, of taking, tasting of this heavenly gift, acknowledges the fact that there is an impact and there is a role of the Holy Spirit 
both in the lives of believers and unbelievers. And that those who are having any encounter with the Holy Spirit, they, they know something is going on. Okay? So the first thing that I want to think with you about is the role of the Spirit in the lives of believers. So the very first thing, we know that the word which is translated comforter in some of your Bibles, helper in some of your Bibles, the Greek is parakletos, and the literal translation is comforter. John 14, 16 says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you. The New King James uses that word helper. Um, a better translation would be comforter. Um, that's the literal of that word. So he is our comfort. He is the one who comes alongside us when, when things are really difficult, right? He is the one who comes alongside us and wraps an arm around us and says, I've got you. And by the way, I've got this, right? He, he is the one who breathes the word of God into us and breathes the, the presence of his spirit and just loves us because we belong to Christ. This is the, the role in which the Holy Spirit begins his work in the life of a believer. It is in this role of comforter, this role of helper. But he is also wisdom for our testimony. Look at John chapter 15. John 15, starting at verse 26. John 15, 26 says, But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you that you shall not stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. These things they will do to you because they have not known you. We read that passage already. And Mark 13, 11 says, When they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Comforter is going to be with us in our trials. He's going to have his arms around us. He's going to be reminding us that he is God and that he is working out the will of the Father in everything that goes on. But he is also going to be speaking to us of who Christ is. And he's going to be giving us the words of our testimony that we are called to speak and proclaim when the hour of our persecution and trials come. Okay, so a lot of times we, we get ourselves tied up in knots worrying about things that are not yet ours to deal with. Okay, we worry about what we're going to say if so-and-so says this. We're worrying about what we should have said when so-and-so said that. We're worried about how we're going to respond to this circumstance and what we're going to do if that happens. And I'm not telling you that you ought not to be a person who anticipates and, and prepares for trouble. Scripture also says that a fool sees trouble coming and does nothing, right? But specifically, the answers of the tongue and the words that you will speak are the property of your God. Amen. Okay? So don't waste a whole lot of time worrying about how you're going to formulate your argument. Instead, draw close to Him and trust Him to do what He promised He would do. Because He told the disciples and through them us... Don't worry about what you're going to say in that hour, because I will give you what you need to say. This is part of the Holy Spirit's job. He is our wisdom from on high. And He is our power to do what we're called to do. Luke 24, 29 says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power 
from on high. Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit gives us what we need to say, and He also takes the Word of God, brings it to our mind, and applies it to our understanding so that we might ourselves know what is right and what is wrong. A great deal of the process of how the Spirit uses our words and gives us the words to speak does not occur in a vacuum. Okay? You need to be biblically based in all of your thinking. You need to bleed Bible. When somebody cuts you, what should come out is Scripture. And you do that before the trial comes so that there is something inside of you to bring forth. Okay? Jesus said, I will remind you of everything I have said to you. The implication in that is that you've heard it before. Right? The implication in that is that you have, you have taken it in, that you've considered it, that you've thought about it. I'm not telling you that you don't need to give any thought to it, you don't need to give any preparation for how you're going to answer with the background issues. Right? I'm telling you, you don't need to formulate your arguments. But you do need to be preparing your own soul so that when the hour comes, there's something in you to bring forth. The Spirit will remind you of what the Father has already told you. John 14, 17 says, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells in you. And verse 26 of that same one says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. His function is to help us understand the will of God. He gives us His peace, John 14, 26, and in the end, He is the one that holds us close so that in spite of whatever's going on in this life, we can know that God is the one who walks with us. Part of our problem in this culture is that the church has very long been in a time of extended external peace. And we have not been tried, and we have not been pressed, and we have not been forced to draw close to God. We have experienced external blessings and external peace and external good things that have had the negative effect of sapping our desire for God and weakening our hunger for Him and causing us to rely on that which cannot be trusted instead of relying only on God. We need to recognize this as a problem. And if God has given us physical blessings, we need to be very intentional about not allowing them to become our joy or our hope or our comfort or our anything else. They are merely tools in our hands given by a gracious God. And they need to remain in that very limited capacity. So if the Spirit has that job in us, what is His job in unbelievers? Well, Jesus said this. Look at me at John chapter 16, starting in verse 8. John 16, starting at 8. It says, When He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in Me. Of righteousness, because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
I still have many things to say to you. However, you cannot bear them right now. But when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will test, tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So while he is speaking to us the will of God and speaking to us the promise of God, the Holy Spirit is having a threefold impact in the lives of unbelievers. And it all centers around the word conviction. Okay? The Spirit's job in the life of an unbeliever is to convict them of sin, first and foremost. The Spirit, in the presence of God's people, proclaiming the truth, will use the truth that is proclaimed to drive the sword of the Spirit into the soul of an unbeliever and convict them of the sin that is in their lives. Okay? The Spirit uses your words to impact the lost. But if the church is not speaking the truth of God's word, is not willing to call sin, sin, is not willing to proclaim the truth that God is angry with the wicked every day, what opportunity does the Spirit have to convict them of sin? Now he's God and he can do whatever he wants. But his ordained purpose is to use the church to convict the lost of sin. That's how he has structured the world to function. And we must be willing to proclaim his truth. Excuse me. I'll choke you a little bit. We must be willing to proclaim his truth and to declare that he is the one who is speaking to them and saying, this is not right. You must stop. I don't get to say, well, I'm not going to be the one to judge their sin. I'm not going to judge their sin finally. But I am going to proclaim the truth of what God gives me in His Word. Because if I don't do that, am I not passing judgment on God's Word? Passing judgment on His truth and saying, yeah, God, you're not really right here. You don't really know everything that's going on in this person's life. You don't really understand how hard it is to be them. Right? You're judging something. You're judging someone. You're either judging them according to God's word or you're judging God according to your own opinions. I'm not sure which one you prefer, but I find the second one a little bit unten untenable. It's not a position I would want to stand in. So the Spirit convicts of sin. And ultimately, He convicts of sin, Jesus said, because they do not believe in Him. Right? So this sets for us the precedent that we must understand that part of the gospel message is the uniqueness of Christ to resolve the problem of sin. That those who are not found in Christ have no other recourse. So right away, all of these preachers who want to say, you know, all you have to do is be earnest and sincere in your belief. They're lying. Okay? They're lying. And they're lying because they're liars who themselves do not know the power of God. They themselves do not know the Christ that they refuse to proclaim. 
You cannot find God through any means but Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay? Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, however you feel about that doesn't say anything about the truth of the statement, but it says everything about the condition of your soul. Okay? So when we speak the truth that Christ alone is the way to know God, we are excluding every other religion on the planet, period. There's no other way to be faithful to Christ. Because if we are unwilling to declare that truth, what we are declaring is that Christ was a liar. Because those are his words. You pick. You choose who you would rather offend. Do you want to offend them? Or do you want to offend the Christ who bought you? We speak, and the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. But He also convicts the world of judgment. I mean, of righteousness. Excuse me, I'm getting out of order here. Now, Jesus goes to His Father. The truth of this entire testimony is wrapped up in that statement. He said, I convict, He convicts the world of righteousness because I go to my Father. Say, so how are these things connected? Remember the idea that the resurrection of Jesus was the final vindication of everything Jesus said or did. Right? If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then his entire testimony could be thrown out. Right. If they could simply produce a body, Christianity dies. And believe me, they tried. And they've been trying for 2,000 years, and they failed, and they will continue to fail until that body returns to earth and sets foot on Temple Mount. Then they'll see the body. Okay? They'll see Him in His splendor. They'll see Him in His glory. They'll see Him in His righteousness. And they'll see Him coming with a sword and not peace. That day is approaching. But the fact that Jesus went to His Father is the affirmation of His testimony. It's the affirmation of His own righteousness. And it's the affirmation that all who are not Him are not righteous. Okay? That all who do not belong to Him have no hope of righteousness except in Him. Make no mistake. Righteousness is unbearable to the unrighteous. Okay? Righteousness is unbearable to the unrighteous. Do not let them couch it in some way that makes you feel bad because they feel bad. It's just the nature of things as they are. The lost hate the saved because our lives convict them of their sin. Period. When we walk in truth, when we refuse to join them in their sin, it bothers them. And it bothers them because Jesus went to His Father affirming the testimony and the truth of what He said. And it also bothers them because the Holy Spirit is convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. 
And he says he convicts them of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the, the reality is this. They know that they are being judged by God. Let me ask you a question, an honest question. Maybe I'm just thick-skinned. But how many of you really get upset when an unbeliever says mean things about you? I don't really worry about it, right? I, I don't worry about it because I don't really care about their opinions. And I know that sounds awful, but I, I, don't, I don't value their opinions, so it doesn't bother me. But how upset do they get when they think that we're speaking something about them which they don't like? Right? Mad enough to throw things. Mad enough to burn buildings down. Mad enough to be awful, awful, terrible people just showing that what I said was true in the first place. Thank you for making my point. Right? What is it that makes them so crazy? It's the Spirit convicting them of judgment. They know that the judgment that they're hearing from us is truth, whether they acknowledge it or not. And it makes them nuts. They know that the things that are being said by Scripture are real, and they can't stand it, and it makes them crazy. Don't lose sight of this. Because this entire set of reality applies to unbelievers within the church as well. Okay? And this is where the writer of Hebrews is pointing us. Now, I want to say a couple of things before we move on with this. I want to say, first of all, that there ought not to be any unbelievers who are members of a true church. Certainly no unbelievers who are leadership in a true church. Okay? But there should be unbelievers within a church's gathering at any given time. Or we're not doing our job right. Okay? We should be bringing them to church. We should be exposing them to the body of Christ. In which they will both be loved as a human being. And rebuked for their sin. Called by the Spirit. And at the same time rebuked by the Spirit for their sin. They should be exposed to the full continuum of the Spirit's presence. Okay? So there should be unbelievers among us. But there should not be unbelievers who we think are of us. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, our problem arises from the fact that often we do not rightly discern who is an unbeliever and who is not. And unbelievers who are in the church can taste the spirit in the atmosphere around them if they're in a real church. Okay? They can taste the truth of what's going on. They can taste the power of it. They can taste the word in its truth, but they cannot partake of its power. They know when something is said that offends them that it's true and they hate it. Okay? They're not under conviction. Watch in somebody's face sometimes. If I'm speaking and, I, and there's a room, a divided room, and, and there's lost people and saved people in the room, and I proclaim something, I can see the truth strike home in a Christian, and they're like, oh, that hurts, but it's true. Thank you, God, and change me. And the same truth strikes home in an unbeliever, and they're like, you fool, I hate you. It's just crazy to me to watch the dynamic that's going on simply because the vessel that's receiving that which is said is different. Okay? 
This is the truth of how mankind responds to the truth of God's Word. Apart from the quickening influence of the Spirit of God, all men hate God. That's our natural disposition. We are born hating God. We are born despising Him. Romans 3 tells us nobody seeks after Him. Nobody does what is right. Nobody, nobody, nobody. We are born despising God. And so unbelievers can hear the truth. They know that it's true. They sense it. They taste it. But they can't partake of its power. And they can taste the worship of the church in its outer order. And sometimes they dig it, right? There's a whole lot of people that really love an extremely liturgical service. And they love the things, bow and kneel and cross and do this and do that and, and obey these things. And they love that stuff because it makes them feel like they're contributing to their goodness. It makes them feel like they can add something to their own salvation. It makes them feel like the work that they're doing actually has value. And there's some people that just love the freedom of worship in a completely non-liturgical church. And, and they, they love the free sort of worship experience where the music is crazy and people are nuts and all sorts of strange things happen. And they love that stuff and they gravitate to that stuff. And okay. There might even be a few people that love a church where the word is central that are not saved. And I would hazard a guess that those who stick around the church where the word is central that are not yet saved are being called by the Spirit. I would hazard a guess if that's the case. Because in the end, they can partake in the outward portions of our worship. They can partake in the fact that what we're doing is aimed at somebody other than us. But they can't really take the fullness of it in. Until they've been changed. They can partake of our worship, but they don't get to take it into them. Because worship, remember, is what? It is an interchange between the living soul and the living God. It is us who are alive, giving to God that praise and adoration which belongs rightly to Him and to Him alone. Amen. Worship cannot take place in the heart of an unbeliever, at least not true worship. Everybody worships something. But they can't worship God. They come to church, they'll sing the songs, they'll listen to the sermon, but they're not able to worship because they are not alive. That living response. And they can taste the many gifts of the church. They can taste the, the fact that the church has love one for another. And they can taste the fact that the church manages its affairs and that God's blessing is upon it. And they can taste the good things that come out of it. And they, they, can, they can understand there's something there. But they don't get to taste the grace of it. They don't get to understand what's really happening until God changes them. And yet, they can hear the call and taste the power. Now, everybody hears the general call of the gospel. They're able to understand the language in which it is being spoken. And, and it's being faithfully spoken. We'll just assume that's happening. They can understand the general call of the gospel. Okay? But that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to respond even if the gospel is faithfully proclaimed with power. It doesn't mean that they're going to respond in a way that we would want to see. Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that when Paul preached, he did it right. 
Okay, I know that may be a controversial statement, and I know that there's probably seminaries that are going to say, no, 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 Paul was, was uh, a little too proud of himself and a little too intellectual, and it's not the right way to preach, but I'm just going to say that Paul probably did it right, so grant me that assumption. Acts chapter 17, Paul has been speaking in the Areopagus, and I'm not going to read the whole sermon even though it's short, but we're going to start at verse 29. He's, this is his culminating statement. He says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something that is shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's that judgment in righteousness again. By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again in this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. And among them, Diosinus and Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So we see here this general call of the gospel. Paul just preaching the truth. He's teaching. He's telling them that God informed everything, right? That, that's a, it's a really excellent sermon to take apart and spend some time in, but we don't have time to do it today. And this general call of the gospel went out. And we see some possible results of it. Some were called in truth and power. It says that others joined and believed. They might respond with God-given faith and be saved. It's possible that that will happen when the gospel is preached. I assume when I'm preaching that the Spirit is speaking. I hope it's true. <laughs> I pray that it's, that it's actually occurring. Which means that somebody who does not yet know Christ just might be saved by the word that's being spoken. Okay? Some might be called to life and they might be saved. Some might reject the general call of the gospel and flee. Some might be intellectually intrigued and say, hmm, let's talk more about this. Right? You're going to see all of these levels of response. And I want you to notice that the difference is nothing in the word that is spoken, but entirely in the one who hears. And more specifically, the working of God in them to either be called out with the effectual call of the Spirit or to be passed over according to God's pleasure. It is God's working to save a people. It is our working to faithfully proclaim the truth. And when an unbeliever is in church, if the truth is being spoken, they're going to hear it at some level on that continuum. Now, Many will hear and respond in truth if the Spirit is moving in power during a season in the life of the church. But there's also the reality that some will hear and they might feel some sort of emotional pull or tug and they will then make a pretense of doing what others are doing because they want to fit in. So, they might have some hunger for conformity or, or a desired gain. Perhaps they just want to escape hell. Maybe the preacher is one of those guys that can really just lay it on and, oh, hell's a scary place. I don't want to go there. I like those sermons, by the way. 
<laughs> I'm just not good at delivering them. But I like them. I, I like to sit under a good hellfire preacher once in a while. It really lights me up. So, is just wanting to get out of hell repentance? Not really. It's completely understandable. And anybody with a brain that actually understands what hell is and actually understands that they're destined for it shouldn't want to go there. That doesn't take the effectual call of the Spirit. It's probably a component of the effectual call of the Spirit. But if that's all it is, it's not enough. What does the effectual call of the Spirit look like? The effectual call of the Spirit looks like this. I see my sin, and I know that as vile as my sin is, I have only sinned against God. And I hate myself for what I've done. And I beg for mercy from the God who I have offended. That's the effectual call of the gospel. That's the effectual call of the Spirit, drawing a sinner to himself. Okay? So when that begins to occur, lives begin to change. But somebody from outside might see somebody going through that transition and go, I, I want some of that action. I want, to, I want to feel better about me. I want to feel like I'm not going to hell. I'll, I'll say that prayer. I'll do that thing. Whatever you ask. I'll sign your card. I'll come to your classes. I'll do your thing. And I'm, and I'm good. People will do this. People do this. This is why a large majority of people who make confessions of faith after a year or less, for most cases, they vanish from the church forever. We have no idea where they go. And all of our programs to, quote, close the back door never address the fact that we ought to start by fencing the front door. We ought to fence the front door with the gospel and not permit anybody to come in apart from the reality that they have been convicted of their sin and are repentant for their sin. Okay? And I'm not talking about keeping people out of church, you understand me, right? I'm talking about keeping people out of membership until we are convinced that they are converted. Some might pretend to be converted because they want the status of being accepted by a loving group because a church that's functioning properly operates in love. Right? So they want to be a part of that. They want to taste that. They want to know what it is to be loved in that way. Or else they just want to be... Well, let's be honest. There are some people who join churches because churches are a large gathering of people in which they can peddle their wares. Right? There are some people who join churches just because there's economic advantage to be sought by being a part of this large group of people. And I can sell my stuff, and I can peddle my wares, and I can do my thing, and I can get you to join my Tupperware parties, and my, my um, Amsoil, and my whatever other pyramid schemes are running. I can get you to be a part of that because we're in the same church, and then, yay. There are people who join churches for that reason. Okay? You need to be clear that genuine repentance is, is an issue of the heart which says, I see my sin like God sees it, and I hate it, and I hate me. Amen. I can't stand it, and I don't want to be this person anymore, so God, please, have mercy on me. And I would even go so far as to say that there's a component in genuine repentance which says, God, I need mercy, but if you refuse to give it to me, you're still righteous, and I'll praise you in hell. Chew on that one for a while. 
Think about that implication of exactly what it looks like to hate your sin so much that you would say, yes, Lord, whatever you do is right. Whatever you do. In the end, false conversion and self-powered artificial righteousness will not save anybody. Okay? It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't even actually change the life. In the end, it leads to false teaching and imagined spiritual wisdom. Look at Acts chapter 8. Perhaps one of the most famous false conversions in the Scripture. A man who is remembered in Scripture as Simon the Sorcerer. That tells you something about his nature and his character. Then you're still awake. There was a certain man, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. Well, let's back up to verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered, and this was by the persecution that Saul was wreaking on the church at the time, therefore those who were scattered everywhere went preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things that were spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. They heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also became baptized, also believed. And then when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, really quickly, let me just assert something that's important to understand when you read this. Every time there was a new group included in the gospel, every time the word went out a little broader, there was this delay in the giving of the Spirit and a visible manifestation of the giving of the Spirit as a sign to the church that they were on the right track. Okay, This was a notice to the church that they were supposed to be doing what they were doing. That the Spirit had been given and therefore, yes, they were right to extend the gospel to the Samaritans. We see the same thing when the Gentiles were brought in with Cornelius, okay? So, on. When they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart might be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon you. Is that repentance? No. That's just, oh, that sounds terrible. I don't want that. Peter told him what to do, right? What was he told to do? Repent, 
pray to the Lord, ask God to forgive you. Simon wasn't willing to do that. Simon just said, oh, okay, you pray for me. Okay. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. So what happens when somebody is falsely converted, even when they've been caught out and rebuked? Well, they return to idolatry and empty ritual. They go back to what they've been doing. They go back to what they've always been. They go back to what man has invented. They are flagrantly self-aggrandizing showmen. And they intend to create emotional responses and promote people's superstar status. There will be false displays of spiritual gifts and proclamations of gifts and demands that others recognize and praise these pretenses. Right? You'll see people come in, I have the gift of discernment and let me tell you about your life. Oh, really? It's good of you to proclaim that you have that gift. Maybe when somebody else recognizes the gift that's in you, you will understand that that gift is real or not. Right? You don't get to declare what you got. Other people must recognize it. The Spirit will give voice to that. So, so there is this, this aura that surrounds spiritual things in the church that is very pervasive and very invasive and very dangerous to the church as a whole if it is permitted to take root. Therefore, it must be dealt with. Somebody who is walking in sin, who is disobedient to the Word of God, who evidences to the church that their conversion is not real, that they are not a part of the Holy Spirit, they must be removed from membership, they must be corrected and removed from any position they might have, and then they must be evangelized with love, with affirmation of truth. Okay, when the scripture tells us to treat them as an unbeliever and a tax collector, we talked about this in Sunday school, it doesn't mean to shun them. It doesn't mean that you never talk to them. It doesn't mean that you put them away. It means that you see them as somebody in need of the gospel. And you ramp up your efforts to proclaim the gospel to them. Okay, you continue to speak the truth. You continue to proclaim what is real and what isn't. In doing this, you will either draw them through the gospel to Christ, or they will flee completely. Okay? And they'll end up shunning you. <laughs> it's going to happen one of those two ways. One of those two things is going to occur. We need to pursue them for the purpose of salvation. So we do not play softball about speaking the truth. We need to be earnest in our intention for their soul. Okay? We need to be absolutely clear that these are dire stakes. And we need to welcome them to participate in services, but warn them about the need for authenticity in their own soul for it. Remember the statement that Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper and participating in the Lord's Supper? Just by way of example. We're not going to read the passage, but you remember he talks about how if a person must examine himself, and then he makes this statement. For this reason, many among you are sick and some sleep. Right? Approaching the Lord's table in an unworthy fashion was fatal to some of the church people in Corinth. That's the euphemism, some sleep. Right? 
People were dying because they were not rightly discerning the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just about the table. The table becomes a euphemism for the Christian life. The table becomes something that we must recognize represents inclusion and, and, a, and a partnership in the body of Christ. Okay? That's the representative truth there. So what I'm saying to you is that, yes, we want unbelievers to come be a part of our services. We want them to come hear the Word of God being faithfully proclaimed. We want them to participate in this as much as they can. But we want to be really clear with them that this is not a game for us and it should not be for them. Because false conversion is dangerous. That there is nothing in the world worse than somebody who has had some part of Christ has responded in some end and, and made some confession and then fallen away. What the writer of Hebrews tells us is that if it were possible for somebody to have tasted of the heavenly gift and then fallen away, it is impossible for that one to be restored. Why? Because the heart becomes so hardened against the truth that only just touched it. They, they literally become vaccinated against the gospel in a real sense of the word vaccinated when it actually makes you immune. Right? They are made immune to the gospel by that constant exposure and tentative pretend response. Beloved, this is not a small matter. The responsibility to rightly discern Genuine conversion before we give the right hand of fellowship to somebody cannot be overstated in its importance. We must be earnest about this. We must be serious about this. We must be absolutely clear that this is blood earnest reality. Because God is not playing games with the souls of men. Love the apostasy that comes when somebody tastes just a little bit of God and then falls away. It's terrible. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace. We pray that you would remind us, God, that the salvation of men is indeed your work and not ours. But God, at the same time, I pray that you remind us of the blood earnest reality of how important it is that we as your church proclaim the truth, stand for the truth, and do not compromise to make it easy on people. Father, help us be a church in a way that is real and true. And I pray, Father, that as we walk in truth, that Christ would be honored to be among us, that he would be recognized as being present by the lost and the saved life and that the glory of Christ might be proclaimed in this place, brought forth with power, and that he would be loved in hearts where he is not despised, and that the Lamb would receive the full reward of his suffering. We ask all of this in the precious and perfect name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.